Welcome to another edition of Eusebius on Times Live. I was starting to think how to word what this podcast discussion is about. It pertains to an incredibly serious matter, so I do not want to be too chatter and jocular. But for weeks, for months now, I have been having one horrible potential title in my head, how to steal an election. And that, for me, is your worst nightmare as a democratic citizen. You want elections to be run with integrity, efficiently, and to be objectively free and fair, and to be seen to be such by voters in an ideal situation. And as South African elections become more and more competitive and the stakes are ever higher, and we march closer to 2024, many of us will be, ought to be particularly vigilant around the integrity of processes because they relate to the substance of legitimacy of the democratic process as such and the outcomes in terms of their ethical and political legitimacy is a function of how effective, efficient, and how much integrity the electoral processes have. So I asked Terry Telana to join me so that we can work through some of the issues around how elections work, how do you keep the system to be not porous in terms of potential opportunities for all sorts of interference within an electoral process. And I've asked him to do so because he's got enormous amounts of experience as a former commissioner of the IEC, also acting chairperson before being, of course, a former deputy chairperson for many, many years. And now, with the Institute of Election Management Services in Africa, uh, where he is the executive chairperson. And if you are following him on social media, you would be, or just keeping abreast of the news, quite frankly, you'll be very aware that besides having been at the helm of the institution running elections for the country, he does so now for political parties, for institutions, for corporates, and has got enormous experience at a more general, wider level when it comes to elections. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people zone, their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they share that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. Terry, good morning to you. It's not a selfie moment. It is a podcast moment. Thanks for coming on. (laughs) Uh, Good morning and thank you very much for having me. Now, thanks you um, for making the time because I know that you're incredibly busy, but I also know that you're an excellent leader and um, you're learning to cede control to your team and let them also run events without you needing to be omnipresent. So thanks for coming on. I want to get straight into it. There are going to be two parts to our discussion, as I said to you in our preparation for this recording. The one is 
important technocratic detail. And then the other is the juicier open-ended question around the potential to steal an election. But let's start with the technocratic elements to it. When you think about the 2024 elections, for example, how long in advance does the IEC even begin to think about the process of the elections? Well, the IEC in a normal environment would require at least 24 months to prepare for an election. Uh, but if uh, mm. those elections are based on a system that does not exist, it would obviously require even more time. And the reason why I'm raising this uh, from the outset is because, as you may be aware, that following the Constitutional Court judgment, uh, the the, uh, the parliament was uh, instructed by uh, the constitutional court uh, to change the electoral system um, that we currently have in order to ensure uh, that uh, independents are able to participate in the process without necessarily needing a membership of a political party. So that's a completely different system mm. to the one that we are uh, uh, accustomed to. So. I would argue that IEC would actually even require more time uh, this time around than the 24 months that it would normally require under normal circumstances in order for for it to prepare for the elections. I want to bracket out that question, but I am obviously compelled to ask at least one follow-up. We are probably less than two years out before the next election then. It's now deep into 2022. Elections are normally in the first half of the year for national elections or thereabouts. And there is so much lawfare and technocratic squabble around what compliance with that constitutional court judgment means. It makes me wonder, given your first input, whether feasibility considerations would make that debate moot for purposes of 2024. The only alternative would be for the election date to be further out than it normally would be, but presumably that too is governed by law. What do you make of the timeline in relation to the fight about how to comply with the Concord judgment if the IEC would need more than two years, but it does not have more than two years as we speak? Yeah, I have previously expressed uh, my anxiety about the 2024 uh, elections. And the reason why I'm so anxious about 2024 elections is because, firstly, uh, Parliament took time uh, before they could actually get on to uh, dealing with the issue of looking at the legislation in compliance with the Constitutional Court judgment. You know, so, and I don't want to call it uh, filibustering, uh, but that uh, period of uh, non-action uh, has actually encroached on the time that is required for the uh, preparations for uh, the elections. But also Parliament, when they realized that it was not possible for them uh, to do this within the 24 months that they were given, they went uh, to the constitutional court to, requ to request for more time. And then they've been given six uh, months again to finalize uh, this uh, aspect. And then clearly, if you look at the bill that is there, uh, there are still many uh, gaps uh, there are still many controversial issues, and I'm not convinced that the current bill will actually uh, pass the constitutional muster. You know, so there, there are still many things that have got to 
have got to be done. And I'm not convinced, therefore, based on this, uh, that uh, we will be able to have the elections within a constitutionally stipulated period. Would that be a crisis for the IEC or a crisis for the government only? It's going to be a crisis for the country. Uh, Because as you would imagine, um, there are many people out there who are, you know, waiting for 2024 and hoping that uh, they will be able to choose the government that they want. There are many people who are not getting services in our communities uh, who are thinking that 2024 uh, will provide them with a platform to choose the kind of leaders uh, that uh, they need. And I think there is, uh, following the 2021 uh, performance by the political parties, there are smaller political parties also that are beginning to think that it is possible uh, to basically remove uh, the governing power, the governing party from power. Uh, through the electoral processes. And then they are looking forward Mm -hmm. to making sure that this happens. But also there are quite a number of other formations that are there, including that one of uh, Musi Maimane that has actually been Mm -hmm. uh, coordinating the independence. That uh, believes that uh, this is an opportunity for independence to be able to uh, play a role, uh, basically influence uh, the direction of government. Now, if these things don't happen, it is actually going to be creating a certain level of instability in our country. Um, you know, because the electorate expects the elections. They are fed up uh, with what is going on. They want to choose the people that they want. They can't wait one more day. Now, if the elections are then uh, postponed uh, due to the fact that it is not possible to have them within a constitutionally stipulated period, it's going to affect those. It's going to affect the country as a whole, but it's also going to affect uh, uh, the credibility of the IEC in a way, uh, because um, you know, following the last elections when the IEC wanted uh, the postponement, it is going to look as though it is the IEC that cannot actually be able to deliver the mm. elections within a constitutionally stipulated period, and it will affect its credibility. I despair at that prospect. The framing question for this discussion was about ordinary circumstances, but there is this very massive elephant in this conversation that you've rightly raised at the outset that may be a more pertinent question than the framing question for our discussion. Because if that non-compliance were to happen, that will be a problem in terms of the credibility and legitimacy of the elections in 2024. Opposition, independence, will see it as a deliberate attempt on the part of the incumbent government to minimize electoral hemorrhaging. On the other hand, if it is a shoddy process, then it will lead to what I'm about to get onto, which is a hastily put together, cobbled together set of processes to comply with the letter, but not with the spirit of that judgment. That too is undesirable when the IEC has always had a reputation for being a machine that is highly effective in terms of organizing elections with the necessary credibility and without there being too much porous areas within the electoral system that could be infiltrated by anti-democratic forces within political parties. But let's get on with the ordinary course of affairs. Let's imagine in the world that will not exist that there was agreement how independence should be covered, that the IEC has enough time 
they design a system or modify the existing system. What ordinarily in broad brushstroke theory happen when the IEC prepares for the elections before the day voters wake up to go and actually cast their votes? The starting point is um, the geographic uh, area within which the elections are going to be taking place. So what the IEC does mm-hmm. is that it goes through a process what uh, uh, a process that it calls delimitation process. So delimitation process means uh, that you cut the country uh, according to a certain number of boundaries. Now you may be aware that uh, the, the 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 ward boundaries as well as the municipal boundaries uh, are a preserve of the demarcation board. So demarcation board would have a database of all the information uh, that is related to each geographic area. So the IC uses that information uh, that it gets from the demarcation board. There is a very close uh, working relationship between the demarcation board and the IEC. We'll get that information and Mm -hmm. use that information uh, to cut the country into voting districts. Uh, Voting districts are the small... Um, boundaries that the commission would use for the purpose of uh, the election. So in one word, you'd find that perhaps there are about uh, three districts uh, and, and then in each district there would be a voting station. So mm-hmm. IEC uses that information, including the registration figures uh, to be able to make a determination on how the boundaries of the voting stations or a boundary of a voting district uh, should look like. And then once it has done that, it will produce the maps uh, that will actually uh, be a replica of what is actually happening on the ground there. Mm. It will show all the contours and everything of a boundary of a voting district. And then that information, together with uh, the figures of the population, et cetera, et cetera, is then used to produce uh, uh, what you call the, the voting... Uh, the, uh, the, the, the registration maps. Uh, so after you've done that, then the IEC will uh, begin to recruit staff uh, to make sure that it's got sufficient number of people who can be able to carry out uh, the task of registration. Mm-hmm. So because IEC is an organization that contracts and, 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 and expands uh, depending on the election, uh, it does not have the three, the, the, the 224,000 people waiting there. Normally, it would use these people on a part-time mm. basis just for the specific period of registration and okay. election. So it will have to recruit mm. these people. Uh, it will have to interact with the political parties, particularly when it comes to appointment of either the registration officer and deputy or presiding officer and deputy. That is quite interesting. And then we march closer to the day or days of election. What happens on voting day in order to ensure the integrity of the system is beyond reproach? You know, um, the starting point is uh, the appointment of electoral staff. You've got to make sure that those people are people who are not compromised. And then they've got to sign a, a, a... a code of conduct as well to indicate that uh, they uh, will not favor any political party. And then after you've done that, 
uh, you've got to make sure that there are party agents at each and every uh, voting station. So you've got to talk to the political parties, train their party agents, make sure that they can actually be able to see what is actually happening uh, on the ground. And then after that has happened, when a voting station opens, uh, in uh, the presence of the observers and the party agents, uh, the observers, by the way, are also very important in terms of ensuring the integrity of the process. Uh, the presiding officer will show that there is nothing stuffed in the ballot box, will open the ballot box, turn it upside down uh, before they can actually start with voting so that everybody can see that uh, mm. the ballot papers that will be going into that ballot box or that will be deposited in that uh, yeah. ballot box uh, are actually uh, completely new uh, ballot uh, papers that will be received from the voters. Now, after that process mm. has been, uh, after voting has started, objections are allowed in case someone sees something that is untoward. And at the end of voting, you know, so you allow objections during voting, during the sorting of the ballot papers, uh, during counting, as well as a declaration of the results. And now, during the declaration of the results, after you are done and the party agents have signed the, res the results slip, uh, in agreeing with the results of that particular area, that results slip, it's actually taken now to a municipal office where it will be transmitted to the national office. You know, so, and then when, 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 when they do that, the information also is captured. So you can be able to compare information captured and information in the original results slip to see as to whether the information uh, does correlate. So those are some of the checks and balances mm -hmm. that are there uh, to make sure that uh, there are no irregularities in the electoral process. Terry, the, the vast majority of our elections have been accepted since 1994 as overwhelmingly free and fair. Elections are becoming a high-stakes game. They always are. And although we say this with every election, I think 2024 in particular is going to be psychologically and politically important. One of the most important questions will be whether the ANC goes below 60%. And in terms of the dreams of the opposition, they probably would wish to ask a bigger question. As an analyst, I think it's probably not likely, but there's a non-zero probability that it may happen, whether the ANC could be forced below 50% even. So the stakes are incredibly high. You have design experience and operational experience. And I'm familiar with that. I hope that many of my listeners are and the ones who aren't have learned from your high-level description how the process gets designed and what happens before, on the day, and immediately afterwards when objections are considered and final results are tallied and stamped as authoritative. Now I want us to think for not purposes of scaring my listeners, but as an exercise to try and tighten the system for ourselves as citizens, as thugs. If we wanted to steal an election, how might we go about doing so? And then I think about every one of the steps that you've outlined. There are so many steps 
from the recruiting of the seasonal staff right up to the counting process, the tallying up process, that I think to myself, if these processes involve 500 steps, that means a couple hundred opportunities in each of the different decision nodes, processes that have to unfold for the possibility of malfeasance. How easy is it for a scandalous government or opposition party to try and steal an election? Uh, to steal an election, you would need a, a partnership with an election management board. Uh, not mm. necessarily in all instances, uh, but most of the time, because the election management board is the one that is managing the elections, uh, you'd need to have a relationship with the election management board. You'd have to you'd have to have pliable people who can actually be able to help you uh, to manage mm. uh, the process. So it starts firstly with the the, upon, the appointment process of the commissioners and people who are running. The process are these people with integrity, uh, who can be able to stand their ground, who can be, who, who will not uh, agree yes. uh, to certain things uh, happening uh, that are uh, that are irregular. You know, so that is a start, that, that's a starting point. You know, um, I've, uh, as part of our organizations, we've done uh, we've introduced what we call the integrity wheel. The integrity wheel uh, mentions about four or five areas. Um, uh, that one must take into consideration uh, for the protection of the integrity of the elections. Now, those areas are the most critical that, in fact, if you want to steal an election, you focus on them. There is a book that is written by, uh, I think it's Brian Klaas and Nick Chisman, uh, on how to rig an election. It's a very fascinating book. Um, mm -hmm. And then one of the things that they say mm -hmm. Uh, is that you start firstly with gerrymandering. Uh, gerrymandering, which means that uh, the process that I was outlining earlier on of how you do uh, the districts, the, uh, uh, the, the, yes. the, you know, basically how do you create the constituencies? Uh, and, and then making sure yeah. that uh, the constituencies, the boundary of the constituencies are for people who will support you. So if you know that your support base is in Alexander, and uh, Alexander uh, is not, and then you are in something, uh, you structure your uh, boundaries in such a manner that it takes a bigger chunk of Alexander uh, because you know that's where your support base is. You know, so uh, that's where you start. That's the starting point. That is what the Nats did in 1948. Absolutely. That is how you can get absolute minority support, but a majority of constituency representatives. Absolutely. So it's a very important thing. So in our integrity, we, we mentioned the voters' role uh, because uh, how you manage uh, the uh, those constituencies, uh, boundaries, uh, yeah. will have an impact on your voters' role. So voters' role is the most important element because it is the one that determines who is eligible and who is not eligible. You know, so if you want mm. to uh, make sure that certain constituency that does not support you is not in the voters' role, you can create things uh, such that, you know, they are not there on the voters' role or you remove them from the voters' role and you only end up with uh, those who support you. So that's the first aspect mm. uh, where you can steal an election. The second aspect is 
in terms of the electoral stuff. And I alluded to this when I was talking about uh, the commissioners as well. So if at the voting station level, you've got the electoral staff that will actually uh, either staff the ballot boxes with the pre-marked ballot papers and, and everybody there turns a blind eye, you know, you have a problem. So it means you can use the electoral staff uh, basically to uh, steal an election. Now, let me give you an example of what of once happened when I was still with, with, with the commission. We were, I was managing the objections, what we call uh, uh, objections material to the outcome of the results of the elections. Mm. You know, so, or Section 55 objections. So, uh, when I looked at some of the, of the objections, and then I saw the results, you know, so you'd find uh, that in national elections, you've got uh, two ballot papers, one for national, one for pro for province. And then you'll find a, a, an electoral official or presiding officer uh, who understands the system and decides that if my party or the party that I want uh, got a 2% or they say two votes, and then the one that I don't want has got a 1,000 votes, uh, I tend the numbers around. So I take the 1,000, uh, put it under my party, and then the other party that I don't want, I give it two, two, uh, uh, two, two votes. And then the reason why you do that is because if you inflated the numbers, the system would actually uh, flag it, that the numbers of people registered here, that are just too many. But if you're playing around with the numbers that have already registered, the system won't actually identify it. I want to know if there are 3,000 people registered and, or, or who voted in particular voting station and then the number still reconciled to 3,000. I want to know that, in fact, there is something untoward that has actually happened at that voting station. Uh, but people who yeah. run the elections would know uh, that they can manipulate the system that way in order to make sure uh, that you know they favor their own political party. So that when information is put into the system, already... Um, uh, it has been contaminated. Uh, so the electoral staff, you need to have people with integrity who can actually be able yes. uh, to run uh, the election so that they don't actually compromise uh, the election. And then that's why sometimes, you know, this issue that uh, IFP and Holomisa always raise about the electoral staff and saying, uh, you know, we shouldn't have teachers because teachers, most of them are SADU and SADU is affiliated. Um, has got a certain level of credibility, that argument. And when I was with the IC, I tried to say, let's remove uh, teachers and try to go for the unemployed uh, graduates because we've got many uh, in our society today who can actually be able to run uh, the process for the commission. Now, uh, the, the the third area is obviously the political environment. Are there no-go area, the so-called no-go areas? If you declare certain areas mm -hmm. uh, impenetrable for certain political parties, it would obviously have an impact on uh, the uh, electoral the electoral process. And then the fourth one that we have in our electoral in integrity will is the electoral is the electoral uh, what do you call it the electoral the, the the legal framework. If you do not have consistent legal framework that uh, deals with issues 
consistently, then uh, there also you are likely to find uh, people using different rules and are favoring certain political parties over the other. The last one is, is the one that is normally uh, people you know, uh, know about. This is basically the logistics. You can use the logistics of the elections to disadvantage political parties. You can make sure that in areas where you know that you don't have uh, support, uh, there are no enough ballot papers, and then people wait in the queue, and then eventually they get tired, they leave. You can make sure that the ballot papers there contains the names of wrong people, and you know you can't vote for the person that you you want to vote for. You, yeah. you know, there's just too many things on the the logistics of the elections that can basically uh, advantage or disadvantage a particular political party. So those are the areas. And that is absolutely fascinating. Before we take stock in the last five minutes. On the legal framework and the importance of a rule-based system and the consistent application of the rules, um, do you have an example there of what it means to depart from that principle? I'm trying to get a practical handle on your warning that legal frameworks must be consistently applied. Yeah, uh, let me give uh, another practical example. Uh, during hmm. A, a, what we call special votes. A special votes are supposed to be handled in a particular manner. And then remember that the special votes happen before the actual day of elections. So the first mm. thing that you've got to worry about is obviously the security of your ballots. Mm. Um, you know, is there a framework that you have developed to say the ballot papers are going to be secured at such and such a place? And then firstly, and then secondly, to make sure that um, the ballot papers, uh, if I'm the only person, for instance, who voted in my area, uh, no yes. one should know how I voted. So I can't yeah. give you a ballot pa paper as is. You've got to put it in a small envelope. And then that small envelope mm. has got to be put into a bigger envelope that now contains right. my details. Uh, but and the reason why you do that is because you've got to check that information against the voters' role and to make sure that I don't mm. vote more than twice. Because if you don't mm. do that, then I can still go to the voting station the following day uh, to go and vote when they're now all the voting stations are open. So you've got to now, before you start with your voting, scratch my details. But that ballot paper that is in a small uh, envelope, you then take it out without looking at how I have voted and put it together with all other ballots for that particular day. You know, so if you don't do that, firstly, you can compromise those special votes. Uh, or secondly, uh, you can stuff information on the ballots, on the ballot boxes of the, uh, of the special of the special votes because you are not applying the legal framework okay. uh, properly and consistently in all those instances. I am in awe of these different very systematic elements of elections management and running that one must think through in order to have elections with integrity, whether it be your local club where you go to play bowls or whether we're talking at a national level running elections for your country 
There are certain fundamental principles that always apply. And then the complexity of the operation will depend, of course, on the particular um, institution or company or organization, whatever the case might be, that is actually then holding an, an election. Well, it, it, there's sort of two last questions I want to throw at you flowing from the different ways in which an election could potentially be rigged. And you've given four or five different areas where one has got to be very vigilant and make sure that you have hygienic processes in in play. But the opportunities are clearly so many, Terry, that, that <laughs> I'm thinking of a horrible management consulting term where management consultants give themselves permission to not always get the answer perfectly right, but mostly right. And they will say, well, the answer is directionally correct. It's in the right direction. Now, when there's a you know big margin of error that is possible for you to play within without undermining the outcome of a particular process, then you can afford to get an answer wrong by a couple of points here and there. But when there is very little that separates two factions, two political parties, two candidates in a presidential electoral system, then you can't afford to have a quote-unquote directionally correct answer. You need an answer that is absolutely tight in terms of its accuracy as a reflection of the outcome of the wishes of those who were voting. And you know for yourself that we've seen this in some of the ANC provincial um, elections, for example, in recent months. In the history of the IEC, now that you have the benefit to speak freely, even going back to 1994, many historians and political scientists often debate whether the IEC ran elections that were statistically or mathematically really accurate in the outcome of those results, or whether the legitimacy is because we accepted that the results, although probably literally inaccurate, were directionally correct. They were more or less a reflection of what the populace think. How brilliantly accurate do we run our elections? Or how much is the case of we intuitively know that the results are more or less fair? And to a large extent, uh, the elections uh, that we have had have been free and fair, um, and that there has not really been any material defect in the process to the extent that it would actually affect the outcome uh, of an election. Of course, it does not mean that there are no pressures uh, from okay. uh, political parties, from individuals uh, who will want to get uh, their own way about the electoral processes. Uh, but, uh, you know, thus far, uh, the process mm -hmm. has not really been compromised. And it has, if, even if any person wanted to compromise, mm -hmm. the checks and balances that are there uh, make it difficult. You'll have to connive with so many people uh, before you can actually be able to really uh, manage to, to steal uh, the whole election. I think the only election that we have heard that one can say, in reality, if, I mean, you, if you look at you using... Uh, our uh, current standard, you would come to a conclusion that those elections could not have been free and fair. Are uh, the first elections that we had in 1994? <laughs> Remember that uh, that 1994 election. Yeah. Eventually, there was an arrangement and an agreement uh, that lots and lots of thousands of ballot uh, mm. boxes and ballot papers are not going to be counted, and that uh, we will end up with what we had and and and, and agree politically to accept uh, that that is a, 
those elections were substantially free and fair. And that's why Judge Krechler used the word substantially free, free and fair. fair. <laughs> yeah, substantially, because they, 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 if we, we, we had to use the current standard, um, uh, definitely uh, those elections would not actually, you know, pass the master. It's really fascinating. It's a good example, I guess, of an oddity that um, perceived fairness can sometimes help to overcome difficulties with establishing actual fairness, uh, which is really, really interesting, but it was a unique moment in political history. Now, I don't think that our agitation for accuracy can be overcome with perception. People need to know the process was actually as watertight as possible, which leads me to my last question for today, and you've answered it inadvertently, but I want to ask it casually. Many South Africans wonder, if we are honest, will the ANC cling on to power or will they just steal the elections? You wear many hats, <laughs> commentator, former commissioner, and you also run elections now. Um, what do you say to the average person at a tavern, around the braai, around the water cooler, listening to you and me in their eardrums as they're catching up with the podcast, who secretly or loudly wonder, Ish, I think these guys are going to be difficult to boot them out because it's so easy to control the elections and the IEC. Do you think that those kinds of worries are just a reflection of where we are at psychologically as a nation, but in reality, we should not be having a really scaremongering conversation about the integrity of our electoral processes? Yeah, I really don't think that the ANC would uh, uh, try anything untoward uh, in order to cling uh, to power. And the reason I'm saying this is because Look, in the previous elections, the ANC lost all the metros, literally all the metros, except uh, 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 Devon, mm. which is really, uh, it, which it, it managed to uh, uh, get through, you know, some kind of a coalition. There. Uh, but there is an acceptance already. If the ANC can accept to lose Johannesburg, Swani, and Ekurlin, yeah. um, then and then nothing happens, there's no violence, and it's a peaceful transition, even though some are reluctant to accept that reality, but the truth of the matter is that in terms of illegal transfer of power, mm. it has happened, and then everybody has seen how it has happened. So it is possible, even at the national level, mm. it will happen exactly wow. the same way that it actually happened uh, in the metros. Absolutely. Terry, you've been exceptionally generous with your time, lucid as always. This is an excellent example of technocratic elements of how a part of the state functions that needs to be explained to engaged citizens. And I think that the educational element of this podcast is one that is of high value. Thank you for making time for us. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Mm-hmm.